Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Activist Stories. My guest today is Edie Lerman, a very old friend of mine. Say hello, Edie. Hello, Edie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's good. It's <laughs> classic. That is a classic joke. It never gets old. Um, and uh, Edie and I will probably have a lot of joking around. Edie's one of my oldest and uh, closest friends. Uh, I was just thinking about it, and I think that this year is our 20-year friendiversary, if that's a word. Um, I think that's just about right, 1995 or so. When I first, when I met Edie, I was kind of, uh, I was the big activist back then. I don't think she was as much uh, into activism per se. Uh, I was kind of riding fairly high on my college activism days, uh, legalization activism, which is uh, appropriate to our conversation today. And uh, and I was thinking about it, and I think I'm actually going to take credit, and I warned Edie about this, so she's going to probably correct me on this, but uh, I was going to take credit for Edie's activism. She's now a, basically a 20-year legalization activist, and uh, when uh, when we met, not so much. And then she met me, and I was, you know, this awesome college activist, legalization, I don't want to say superhero, uh, or, you know, superhuman, God, any of those things. What? I don't want to say those things. Those I, are the things you're saying. I'm saying them. I don't <laughs> want to say them. It's not, don't it's not a choice. Yeah, I don't want to. If you didn't want to say them, you wouldn't say them. Uh, separate discussion for a different day. Okay. But, uh, but, you know, it's fair to say giant shining light that, uh, that just showed Edie the way showed Edie the the way to be a good person and change the world for the better. Uh, does that all sound, I mean, is that about right? I, I mean, I think that when we met, you were definitely doing a lot of activism um, relating to cannabis. That's true. I got that part right. And um, I think that, the unfolding of the drug war and it's not making sense were definitely things that I was interested in at that time. So we would have lengthy discussions about it, I'm sure. And I, I feel like there's this huge bandwagon of people who are finally seeing the light of prohibition not being a great solution for our country. And definitely you were someone who was on that bandwagon well before I was. So I would say that. That that's pretty good. That's like at least fifteen percent of the things that I said. So <laughs> that's not bad at all. Uh, so yeah, I'm obviously I'm speaking in hyper hyper hyperbole. Um, Edie, I mean, I think, I mean, and we'll find out in a minute because we're gonna get back to kind of your roots. Um, but you're sort of an activist, and I, this may be the case for activists in general. That's one of the things this podcast is looking to find out. But you're sort of an activist, just like as a person, you're just, it's just part of your, um, part of your your being to want to correct wrongs or advocate for what's right, um, make change for what's right. Does that? I mean, is that something that you see as a thread that preceded sort of your? Absolutely. Life? I mean, I was just meeting with a client today who didn't really have money for the thing that he wants to do, and. Um, and I said, well, some things you do because of money and other things you do just because it's the right thing to do. 
And, right. you know, and, and I feel like I tried very hard as a lawyer to balance paying the bills and getting everything done and then also taking the cases on that are going to make a difference regardless of whether or not they're financially backed the way that they should be, you know, or, right. or can be. Right, right. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that a little bit later. How uh, basically anybody that needs a lawyer should call you, and you will work for free. Oh God, no, um, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> uh, that's what I heard. I don't know. Um, I said something, something. So yeah, most most cases you will do for free, pretty much. Traffic tickets on up. Um, so we'll get to that later, okay. though. I don't want to oversell it. Um, can you think of so so you know? You are now basically a legalization of even a renowned, uh, in some circles, a renowned legalization activist. It has been going on for pretty much 20 years, that development, um, ever since basically the late, the mid 90s. Uh, and that would be, I mean, that was basically your late teens, just right around turning 20 or so. Uh, what about before that? Uh, before this issue became an issue for you, did you have issues that were big things before that? Do oh, you, yeah. Were you an advocate for things, uh, like even when you were a child? Well, um, I was definitely an advocate for things when I was a child. I got into trouble quite a few times at school for trying to would the situation would kind of look like I was the one that was doing the bullying, but in reality it was someone else that was getting bullied and I was just standing up from them for them to the bullies. And so right. I was kind of a big kid and would stand up for people who were kind of getting taken advantage of and then would wind up um, kind of being the person that the principal or the teachers might look at and be like, oh, well, she was the one that was picking on everyone. But then when you really get to the bottom of things, um, I wasn't the one that was actually doing the picking. I think that one of the situations I remember most, which is kind of funny because I don't think it's a story that I've told you before, but um, I had this situation where I wanted very badly to... Uh, I, I was in a school and I didn't really like it there and they were picking on some kids who were almost mentally disabled and wanting them not to um, come to school and, and just giving them a hard time. And after standing up for them, the kids in the school, it, there was a food fight that happened and everyone got so upset with the food fight that they started an actual petition. And um, the principal was trying to figure out who started the food fight and basically the whole entire class got together to sign up against me to say that I was the person that instigated the whole entire <laughs> thing. Um, and one of my best friends to this day, the reason we're such good friends is because she not only refused to sign the petition, but told me about the petition and told the school that that isn't what happened. <laughs> so I've been getting in trouble for a long time um, for my kind of activism views. I also, when I was in high school, I went to the board of supervisors and fought for a women's hockey team. And I think that's my recollection of the first kind of victory that I had uh, as a teenager. I was probably like 15 at the time um, going to the local board of supervisors and forcing them to start a girls team instead of just having a boys team. And so that actually that's outside of uh, school. You're talking about your local government that you went to. Well, it was the school's um, board of supervisors. I see. Yeah. OK, OK. Yeah. And they had like the school board. 
sort of basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they had uh, a boys team, which they were giving tons of money to, and they were trying to force me to play on the boys team. But there were enough girls that were interested in starting our own team, and I kept getting beaten up on the boys team. And so I got together a petition of a bunch of girls that wanted to start a girls team, and we wound up getting money from them. I think it was pretty equivalent to what the boys were getting at the time. Um, it's funny because some issues, it seems like there's so little, like, like pot legalization, it's, you know, from 20 years ago till now, it's, it's a night and day situation. We'll talk about that. And I mean, anybody who watches the news realizes that it's been a titanic shift, but then things like, um, you know, having a separate girls team for things or, or, you know, having girls like have an equal footing in sports teams at schools. That's still a thing that gets grappled with. Like I, I saw a story about that just recently, um, about that same issue still, you know, people still struggling and, and grappling with that idea. Um, it's, it's just weird how some things we, we move forward on and some things we don't. Although I guess like part of that is school like school and school administrations and just the way that whole business runs, that hasn't changed. Well, also, I mean, I think certain sports like ice hockey, for example, when I was 20 years ago, there were very few women that were playing ice hockey. And now it's, that has totally revolutionized. Like I, I remember even when I went to Smith college, trying out for the hockey team was way more serious than the high school team that I had formed. I mean, in the high school, and it's probably one of the reasons I wound up not really playing hockey at Smith because the high school team, I mean, this is kind of, I guess I was a little bit of a baby, but the high school team that I formed, me and maybe one other girl were by far the best skaters on the team and we would run circles around everyone and it was pretty easy going. Whereas right. when you got to Smith, that was really hard work and I was getting, you know, <laughs> Um, I, I was maybe going to make a second string of, of applicants as opposed to like being the best skater on the team. Not that that's the most important thing, but I just found it way too grueling and, um, and too much of a commitment, but there's tons of girls out there that are doing really well with it. And it's, it's, um, expanded quite a bit since I was into it. Right. For sure. Uh, when can you. Can you remember, you said you used to stand up for bullies and stuff. And it's interesting. That's another thing that, uh, you know, back in when we were in school, um, peer pressure and that's just sort of that system of intimidation that, that results in bullying and stuff. It was really accepted. I, at least by my teachers and by my, it's just was like, it's like in, uh, in jail or whatever, where there's just, this is the way it is. This is the way those, the animals are to each other. And the the warden and the so on don't really, um, you know, try and like change that system. And I think that administrators saw school that way for a long time too. The you know the whole blackboard jungle notion of like those kids they're sort of um, uh, lower the flies in each other and they're not really going to get involved. And now in you know in the past ten years or so, the whole anti-bullying thing has become, you know, just a, a storm that will not cease. Um, but back then it was, it was like you were saying, you were going against the tide. You know, you were like a troublemaker for trying to help people not get uh, pushed around. Can you recall when the, your first thought on that? Cause that's, it's interesting cause I'm going to be recording these little uh, stories of my own development as an activist and that's kind of my early story too, which is like standing up for people who are 
uh, people in my school and other students who were getting a little, I wasn't a big kid, but I was uh, like a real smart kid. And so I used that strength to stand up for people who, you know, might be getting uh, kind of pushed around. And I also just, um, aside from smarts, I had like a ton of ego. So I was brave and, and not afraid of people who would, you know, talk crap about me or whatever. And, uh, and so I used those tools uh, in defense of others. Can you remember the first time that it occurred to you that that was a thing or that, that it was something to address that you wanted to be on the, that side? Um, I mean, I remember early on, like maybe elementary school, 12 years old, 10 years old, starting to get involved with kids bullying, whether it be me or other kids that were, um, just less, uh, popular or whatever, and less advantaged in a lot of ways. And I think that some of it, in my recollection now, looking back on it, was economic in the sense that um, there'd be kids that would come to school with, like, the same pair of jeans four days in a row. And then sure. they'd start making fun of them because there's nothing wrong with the kid. They're just coming to school with the same pair of jeans four days in right. a row. And who knows? Their their parents could be bringing them home and washing them every day or washing them every other day. Like, who cares? But they sure. get made fun of. And I definitely remember pointing out to kids like not everyone has money to go buy five pairs of jeans for school. And um and I remember one of my friends being someone who only had one pair of jeans to go to school and and I remember trying to help her out on multiple levels. Like, hey, here's some jeans from last year that, you know, didn't don't fit me anymore and maybe you can try them on and they'll work for you. Or um just helping her by trying to make it um so that she was more comfortable in an environment. Like, I think that growing up in New York, where I grew up, people have this sense of entitlement and this sense of everyone can go out and buy a $150 pair of jeans to wear to school the next day. And so right. it's kind of sad when you see kids um, making fun of other kids because they're not wearing the same clothes as the other kids or um, maybe driving, you know, as you get older, driving a nice car to school and that kind of stuff. So I think sure. that, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say that's one of the big foundations of peer pressure back in uh, in school times is like what you're wearing, what you can afford kind of, and can you uh, can you afford all the accoutrements of being uh, quote unquote cool, you know, the, the right shoes and the right this and that and all that. And I was kind of, in a way, I was lucky because my parents were pretty well off. So my if I personally wanted to go out and buy a $150 pair of jeans, my dad or my mom would take me to go get them. I remember right. to this day, like having a certain brand that I would come home with and be like, oh my God, I just have to have a pair of Z Cavaricci jeans. I have to have them. I don't care how much they cost. And I had no okay. concept in my mind of like what a hundred, what it would take to actually earn $150 or, right. or the fact that these jeans aren't going to fit me in four months from now. Like it didn't matter. But right. my parents <laughs> were well off enough to be able to get them for me. But I also had the luxury in some ways of having friends that didn't have that and um, and trying to like still make sure that they got a, a well socialized education. No. Right. Right. Yeah. So you have been um, looking out for others basically for a long time. I wonder I kind of wonder where that comes from. The, so you said, you know, you were you were kind of uh, bigger than the other kids. You're also, you know, 
real smart and and able to express yourself well. I mean, when you get into high school, you're a big time debater, you're yeah. a competitive debater. Uh, you're I would I mean I call I consider you one of the most intelligent people and one hardworking in terms of. Um, you know, I want uh, you to call of... my son and tell him that because yesterday he called me stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, they're not mutually exclusive. He's um, he said, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, I guess. You know, I, I got to hear his side of the story, honestly. Yes. I, just, you know. I told he uh, got a timeout. I told him I was not stupid. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, you got to stand up against bullies, Edie. So I stand, I'll stand behind you That's on that. Right. You know, he, he shouldn't be pushing you around that because of your intelligence. pretty funny. I mean, I don't think it's quite appropriate for the interview, but um, it's really interesting. Eli is kind of a natural bully. And as a parent, I see it like we'll go to the playground and there'll be four kids that are like he's four years old. So there'll be kids like seven or eight years old up in the playground, like climbing on the jungle gym. And he'll start right. screaming at them like, hey, get down from there. It's dangerous up there. And literally we'll be at the park for five minutes and he's bossed around every single kid at the park. And like some of them <laughs> will listen to him. And it's amazing. Like you'll see seven and eight year olds getting down off the jungle gym because he is just so like, sounds like he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and then others will just be like, whatever, I'm not listening to you. But um, it's an interesting challenge because it's different from my personality. I'm not I'm not like that at all. And I have to tell him, like, we cannot be bossing the kids around from the park. Someone's going to kick your butt. Well, isn't it isn't it different a little though, bullying versus bossing? Because I mean, that's kind of just being like a leader. Uh, I mean, he's a he bully too. Oh, he picks oh. on people too. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say. Um, all right, okay, you cleared so, that up. So we go to the mall, and he decides that he's gonna walk in front of me, and every single person he's gonna like bash into them with his elbow and his forearm, um, in order to get them to move out of his way. Okay. <laughs> that's bullying in my mind. That, yeah, and that's definitely not your personality. No. I mean, you're, one of the things I was going to talk about is how you are like um, a master at uh, avoiding conflict and resolving conflict and sort of uh, bridging conflict between varying parties and stuff. I'm definitely like, like get your way with sugar, not get your way with like being bad. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you are definitely uh, uh, driven by sort of kindness and positivity. And it, 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 as a not just in general, but as a, a technique, uh, as a as a way of sort of um, getting things done, um, you, you take an approach that's, um, yeah, definitely about making people smile and making people, uh, you know, embracing people and, and making them happy rather than, um, yeah, fomenting conflict or butting heads with people. Well, I try to be compassionate, like even if I'm doing a. Uh highly contentious cross-examination with a police officer who I think is lying about what he's saying. I still try to approach it in a way where I, Jerry Spence, I don't know if you know much about Jerry Spence, but he um, he wrote this book called... Oh, How like, to Argue and Win Every Time? No, it's not. That one's good too, but it has to do with your case, like um, winning your case at trial or something like that. And in that book, he talks about um, the compassionate cross-examination and how you're going to get a lot farther with the compassionate cross-examination than you are with one that just tries to attack the officer. And so um, I, I think that's kind of my style at litigation in general is sort of to understand or even 
in activism to understand where the other side is coming from. I think especially with pot legalization, so many times it's a matter of kind of understanding that that person thinks that they are on the right path. Even the district attorneys that I work with, they're not trying to do bad things. They're trying to force or enforce the law that they see as a good law. And so um, they're just misguided. They don't understand the reality. Do you find, um, and uh, yeah, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but do you find, I mean, are is, is that true for everybody or are there like uh, villains out there? Um, some people who are just, I mean, obviously, I mean, uh, I think they're misguided. They're, I mean, they're trying to get to their path. Sometimes I think that they're willing, the person who I would categorize more like a villain or a cheat or something like that, um, is people that are willing to, let's say like hide discovery when they Mm -hmm. know, um, like I had this case for a while where it was very obvious that the cop was lying and then we wanted the um, digital video of what happened. And for like nine months, the DA basically hid the video, pretended it didn't exist, did everything that they could to kind of avoid having to turn this video over. And the video was very incriminating against them. It showed that the law enforcement officer had been lying. And so part of my job really then becomes like actively litigating over trying to get my hands on the video and um and eventually getting them to turn it over and so but what's this what's the sympathetic case for that guy the the video hiding da uh i think that in his situation he believes that the war on drugs is wrong and that this is just a loophole that i'm Wait, using the war on drugs is right is uh, sorry yes the war on drugs the, the fight for legalization <laughs> the fight is for wrong. legalization is wrong and right. that um even though he's sort of doing right for the or he's doing wrong for the right reasons where he believes that what he's doing is keeping drug dealers off the street keeping people who were yeah they maybe were going the speed limit and the officer pulled them over illegally but there was 40 pounds of herb in their car so the end right he thinks they're a bad they're a bad person yeah even if uh if yeah which is why he's misguided and it's funny that that particular da handed me the cd and left the district attorney's office the same day. Huh. Yeah. Defeated? Is that the theory I, behind that? Is that the narrative we're going to go with? Yeah. Is that you, it was, you broke his will? It, it was very odd timing. I don't think I had anything to do with him leaving, but I think that he turned the video. If I had to guess, I think that it was a concerted effort on the part of law enforcement to keep the video from us. And he was finally so fed up with them. And in my fantasy, my brainwashing of him had worked so that he no longer believed that he was in the right. And he turned it over and left. Hmm. But I don't know. And and I've talked to him. He's actually pretty much left the practice of law since. So I've talked to him quite a bit because we were kind of friends afterwards. And um, and I'm not sure. Even, even though you ruined him and broke him. I think that... <laughs> A lot of officers have come to the realization that the war on drugs is wrong. Like, let's say the officer himself was keeping it and refusing to turn it over. And then, you know, who knows who was in the line of the corruption of what was happening there? All I know is that I got the CD and he was no longer with the DA's office. And they dumped the case like two weeks later. Um, So this actually, I mean, this isn't supposed to be. 
this podcast isn't supposed to be about issues per se, but it always comes up because I, you know, I think the activist and the issue are, are kind of go hand in hand. Tell me something a little from your experience, because uh, there's a lot of talk these days about um, a police and about good cops and bad cops and most cops are good cops and all this stuff. And I've been having some discussions with people about how, um, you know, there's got to be at least some level of problem with the system. Like if there's if there's only 1% bad cops or whatever you hear the people say, suggest that, you know, it's just a tiny segment, how do those folks continue and, and survive and exist and get to, you know, they're officers of the year a lot of times and they're, they get commendations and all that. And then, uh, and so my theory is that, you know, they're, there may be a lot of good cops, but they must be supporting and helping and turning a blind eye to uh, the, you know, the bad cops out there. And so the question is, how much of the system is or, or the people in the system, from your experience, is designed to sort of protect the system, to protect the brotherhood, to sort of, you know, defend them for the sake of just defending them, like to, for them to defend themselves for the sake of it? rather than based on reality or the right or the facts or whatever. There's this great quote that uh, they say about lawyers, which is 99% of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name. And I think that <laughs> sometimes I think of law enforcement that way, um, although it's probably not entirely accurate. I believe that there are great law enforcement officers out there. And I personally am friends with law enforcement officers who I think are good people. Um, I think sometimes good people make mistakes and make bad choices. Uh, I don't, I think it's really hard to tell when you have something like uh, the plague of the war on drugs really crippling the nation in a lot of ways because corruption is so, it's an opportunity. And when the right. opportunity is not there, the corruption dissipates. Um, yeah, so the incentives are, are perverted, basically. Yeah, and the incentives are quite a bit um, skewed, obviously, against individuals. I also think that there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of law enforcement kind of angry with um, marijuana growers making what they perceive as a whole bunch of money. And so they don't feel like it's that big of a deal to screw them over on this or that because they're coming out like hand over fist and they don't have to pay taxes and they don't have to do this. So it kind of creates this almost like um, Petri dish of excuses that they can use in order to foster a really bad environment. It's it's funny. The, have you ever read The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan? No. It's really good. I would highly recommend it. But he um, he talks about four different plants and the domestication of those plants. And he analyzes, I think it's the apples, um, the potato, cannabis, and the tulip. And one thing I definitely feel like I learned after reading his book was that the symbiotic relationship that is happening between cannabis and the human being is probably a lot more similar to the way the bumblebee is to the flower than we think of. So when we think of like a bumblebee, when it's going to get nectar from a flower, 
it thinks that it's the one in control of this relationship. And the bumblebee is the one that needs food and wants food and is going to the flower to get its food and leave. But really, there's a symbiotic relationship going on there. And there are things that the flower's doing to entice the bumblebee to be interested in it. And it's also getting benefits, like it's getting pollen going to other locations. So, sure. um, So cannabis, in a way, affects individuals' minds. And I believe that it affects individuals' minds, not necessarily just people who are using cannabis as medicine or as, you know, whatever they're using it for, but potentially people who aren't using it. Um, And it's just a really interesting perspective on cannabis and the mind and why it's illegal and why it's not illegal or what we can do to change that. Um, So I think sometimes law enforcement officers, even the ones with best intentions, are sometimes misguided. And I know it's not an exact answer to your question, but it's really hard to give a percentage of like 25% of the workforce is corrupt. Or I think there's, right. there's also, my experience is that law enforcement officers do not like to lie on the stand and they don't like more so to be caught in a lie. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you're able to compassionately get them to a position where it seems like they are either are going to lie about what happened and you're going to be able to prove that or they have to kind of give a true answer, you're in a better situation. Like even um, over the camaraderie of the good old boy network, I think lying is lying on the stand under oath kind of a lot of times trumps that. And well, yeah, yeah. And so it's hard to get that um, done clearly because there is so much of this kind of good old boys network, but um, sometimes you can do it and it's pretty successful. Yeah. Well, nowadays, especially this isn't maybe so much a thing in, uh, in pot legalization circles, but the, the body cams and all the, you know, the camera footage of, of police is kind of peeling apart that whole, you know, ability for them to protect each other and to cover things up and all that. Well, and not uh, only just the body police and stuff, but record keeping. Like nowadays, records help so much in in tracking down pot cases. Like even with something as simple as proving up that law enforcement was lying about how they destroyed the marijuana once they came to the property and took the marijuana off the property. I had a case um, in a different county than the one I normally practice in where the cops were saying that there was 1,600 pounds of marijuana that were taken from the property. And then we did some further discovery and we found out that there was like way less than that that was actually destroyed, closer to like 800 pounds. So Mm -hmm. now there's missing over like two days this, what, 900 pounds of marijuana. And and getting the cops, there were 13 cops involved in that investigation, but getting their stories as to where the marijuana went and what was destroyed – was easily attacked by getting the records from the dump, which showed the weight that got delivered and proved that they were lying. You know, right. And so it's like a, a good lawyer is able to track down documents beyond what the cops are giving them or beyond what the cops initially turn over to them and able to show that things maybe aren't exactly the way that they say. Right. Well, that's in, that's a, brings up a little bit of a point about the um... – 
about your practice and what I've learned just in, in seeing how you tackle cases and stuff, because, you know, most people uh, that are busted for pot, it's there's a way that it works. I was, I was arrested for pot twice and when I was in Massachusetts when I was younger. And in both cases, uh, well, actually, one time we hired an attorney and the other time we had a public defender or uh, the second time was just me. And um, uh, in both cases, though, the it was like a standard operating procedure was in place, which was that because of the laws at the time, uh, they've changed a bit in Massachusetts. But at the time, it was a big deal. You would lose your license pretty much automatically. There was all sorts of uh, ramifications at the even the lowest level if you ended up getting convicted. And so uh, there, it was just standard operating procedure that you would plead to uh, like a continued without a finding type of plea, which is basically you saying, yeah, I'm probably guilty, slap me on the wrists. And they're basically saying, okay, yeah, we know we're guilty. We're not going to do the whole you know, take away your license thing, but we're going to, you know, we're giving you the slap on the wrist, the suspended sentence, that sort of thing. And because of the very, because it's so hard to do the legit fight to, to do all the discovery and all the depositions and all the challenging and all the research, and that all costs a ton of money. And the plea bargain is so, it's such an easy greased up skid basically to just go to, go right down that path. Um, that, that, you know, most of those cases, I would say, aren't fought. Yeah. I mean, right. They're just conceded pretty much right out of the gate. And the lawyer says, you know, take this. It's going to be easy. And that's you know going to be the way to do it. We go the other way and it's going to be a big deal. It's going to cost you thousands of dollars and you might lose and, you know, have all those ramifications might actually end up going to jail for some stupid pot thing or whatever. I, I think the spirit of that still holds true today in California where. Most people who decide consciously to fight their case and have money to pay for an attorney to do that wind up spending more money than they would if they just copped a plea early on. And, right. and I, I think that that's absolutely true. I'm interested in the cases that are going to set precedents for both counties and statewide. Like, for example, there was this case up north that I did um, where a friend of mine had gotten busted and he's this toothless old hippie who didn't have $10 to like rub between um, or $2 to, to his name. And um, we wound up fighting his case all the way through trial. And after we won the trial, that judge kept getting uh, marijuana cases, like every marijuana case that he did for the next few weeks, he just threw out because he said, Oh, well, that other case, you couldn't even win the trial. So I'm just throwing these cases out. I'm not even handling them anymore and dismissed or whatever. And then that judge wound up getting recused all the time by the district attorney's office because he just refused to prosecute pot cases any longer. So mm-hmm. those kind of. So the, the district attorney, like he, the judge bows out of prosecuting any. And the DA is like, yeah, we're not. Bows out of using that judge anymore. Right. So, right. but it really did change the county. Like the, the amount of case everyone, and this is a one courthouse kind of county or one courtroom mm-hmm. kind of county. Right. Every single, like the fact that they're now recusing that judge means that some judge needs to drive from 300 miles away <laughs> from a visiting judge to come sit <laughs> and hear their silly pot cases all day long. And he doesn't want to be doing that. 
So, so many cases are resolving now for much better deals than they were previously just because we fought the case. And I like cases like that, that are actually going to make a difference in the way policy is set in that courtroom in the future. Well, that's one of the things that I, uh, because you and I, we're not really, uh, we don't hang out that much anymore. We've got distance and we're busy and we're doing two totally different things and stuff. And so it's been several years since we kind of hang out on a regular basis. But uh, every now and then I sort of dip in and I learn about what you're dealing with or have, you know, the cases you're handling. And one of the things that fascinated me early on when you were starting to get into this was how, you know, someone would get busted with like, I'm just going to throw numbers out or whatever, but like 10,000 plants or something. And the police obviously kind of would be like, all right, you know, we've got one of those like headline producing bus. It's such and such number of pounds. It's like a million dollars street value or whatever. And and they think they've got a shoe in like, because who's going to beat a case where the person has 10,000 plants or how do you make a a medical case that you need 10,000 plants or whatever. But then, and again, I'm making up the numbers, but the idea is, is solid. You take cases like that and then you, you win it or you get the police to back off or you get the police to, you know, you get the 10,000 plants thrown out. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, we found a couple of roaches in his ashtray as well. Can we, you know, and, <laughs> and the, the case goes forward with a couple of roaches in the ashtray, but the 10,000 plants can't be, you know, referenced at all or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I know that you like, you were breaking hearts on the prosecution side for a while. You probably still do, uh, in that respect where they end up with these, they think they're going to be these sweet busts, uh, and these shoe ins the way they're just going to, you know, the people can't fight back and they've got no case or whatever. And then you, you know, like you said, you fight for every little step of the way to to you know to turn it around to go in the other direction so when i started i I practice now a lot in sonoma county and when i first started here the head district attorney that had just got elected here was formerly second in command in mendocino county right when she first started i was going to these like women's bar meetings for lunch and that kind of stuff and we she was having one uh, it wasn't women related, but it was just on the destruction that illegal grows due to this county. And my whole theory is, well, if they would just regulate these illegal grows, they wouldn't be destroying anything because they would be regulated and they'd be permitted and then you wouldn't have the problem any longer. So Yeah, it's all consequences of the underground. Yeah. Basically. So I went to the meeting yeah. to basically like have an opportunity to point that out. And it's all lawyers, mostly district attorneys from her office and she's giving her whole speech, like probably 70 or 80 lawyers are in there. And she actually says, and I see Edie Lerman is in the audience here. (laughs) And I just want to point out that I've spent the last few years watching her run the district attorneys up by us in circles. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really worried about what she has in store for us here or something along those lines. It was so funny. That's, that's awesome. Really awesome. I was laughing like so funny. And then the sheriff in Mendocino County, we've t- he and I are kind of friendly, and he said to me numerous times, "If I ever get busted, you're who I'm hiring." 
<laughs> so I think those are great things, right? Like <laughs> those are really sweet endorsements, you know. I, I didn't see those on your website. I actually, you should be, uh... um, I asked him if I could put that on my website, but he's really not too into it for some reason. <laughs> like, <he's... laughs> um, yeah, too bad there's not like a little video of that woman's talk. That would be really. Uh, it was pretty funny. Sweet blurb yeah. for your commercial or whatever. <laughs> Um, so actually let's dial back for a minute and, and I, you know, I got to warn listeners, uh, this is undoubtedly going to end up being a, a conversation that we have to pick up some other time and, and have a second or third of these interviews because there's so much to talk about. And, um, and, and, you know, your person, again, like your, your activism is your career. It's your, it's, it's kind of your whole thrust. I mean, you've got a family, you've got other things that you're interested in as well. But uh, but you fused activism with your, uh, you know, with your making a living and with your passion, uh, of, you know, your sort of uh, vo vocation passion. And, uh, and to me, that's, you know, that's a, a you can just dig into that endlessly. I want to talk for a second about how you became so. Um, so you're you when you're a teenager, you are uh, you're fighting against uh, bullying, you're fighting to change the rules and fighting for fairness. Um, and then you, then something happens that you're going to tell us about, and you start to become aware of the unfairness of, of pot and the drug war or, or the laws against pot and so on. Can you tell us a little about how you, how you eyes got opened up and how you started to take an opinion and a stance on legalization? Yeah, so it's hard because now I kind of feel like you, um, you've you influenced my opinion somewhat because I'm wondering if it's more what happened after I went to Smith. But Yeah, it's, so you met this guy named Lance no. and he, he was on stage because I remember there was a rally and this had, so this happened. So this might be. I don't we think could we just, met when you were on stage. We could just read. No, we had already met, but you had, you were at the rally. Sure. And it's, yep. And at some point during that rally, I was on stage and it's very possible that you saw me. It's possible. I have no idea. You could have been elsewhere at the well, thing. I don't but, remember uh, the rally. But I'm, the way I'm telling it, uh, there's, uh, there's obviously, there's a glowing light coming down, uh, sort of a, forming a halo around me. And you look up and, you know, your heart stops for a minute and you're just like, this is, I don't even know what's happening to me right now. This isn't the story I recall. Well, the, the one there I also might be the thing about your uh, your boyfriend and he had cancer and stuff. Yeah. That could be it. Well, but I think Let's try that it's one. sort of a combination in some, it sounds weird, but and I don't remember the rally at all. But um, I think that I was taught that drugs were bad and that kind of the dare all drugs are bad. There's no medical benefit to any of the drugs. And then, um, having exposure through a, a boyfriend who came down with Hodgkin's lymphoma and was told by a doctor at Sloan Kettering that he needed to get cannabis, um, because he had lost so much weight that his, um, system could potentially not be able to survive the chemotherapy without it. Uh, I think that that awakened me and the whole process of going to get the cannabis and it be. I was going to say, he, so he did it. He went. No, he, the doctor um, didn't give us the cannabis. He told Eric these things and then Eric went home and was able to get it from a family member. 
Well, well, that's what I meant. So Eric, he went through with the that yeah. as a treatment. Yeah, and it worked really. And well at that time, hundred percent illegal, right? Hundred percent illegal. New York yes. State, yes, full blown illegal. Yeah, and so um, I started to not believe what I had been told, and I actually think it's quite a dangerous lie to tell people because once you start seeing, well, wait a second, if this I've been told has no medical benefit, but this person now I'm being told it does have medical benefit. That's actually not true. So let me start looking into this a little bit more and learning more about it. And I think that that sort of railroaded into me um, kind of moving on. I also, I kind of remember um, Eric and I being um, interested in finding out even after he, like the other potential medical benefits for cannabis, once he had started getting relief from that. So I think that in general, um, that's my main recollection as to why I started being interested in this thing that I had otherwise before been pretty uninterested in. And I think had I not over gone through that experience, that I probably wouldn't have had as open a mind to the issues as I did when I met you. So right. I think that it kind of is both in some ways. Sure. And and obviously, I hope everybody gets that I'm pretty much 100% joking about being the uh, like the number one influence or whatever that, uh, your, that brought you around. Your story um, reminds me of this crazy thing that you can edit this out if you decide it's not appropriate. But this client of mine came, it was like his wife. And one day she came to me and she's like, I know exactly what's going to happen in court tomorrow. You're going to start speaking and the light is going to shine through at just <laughs> the right angle. And the judge is going to see that you are an angel sent there by God. And nice. Like you'll levitate and the judge will levitate and they'll just throw the whole case out. Whoa. So I'm like, okay, this person it's has another good endorsement. way crazy expectations for me when we go to court tomorrow for her husband. So we go to court and basically it was kind of one of these deals similar to what you were saying in Massachusetts where they give like a deferred entry of judgment is what they call it here. Right. So that's what happened. And the case resolved with the DJ and we leave court and she's like, my dream, that's exactly what happened. Like, that's what she saw. <laughs> that's that's, that's levitating to her, like, huh? Oh, my God. She's like, did you see the light? And did you see that? I'm like, no, I didn't see any of that. But here's your paperwork for your deferred judgment. Like, oh, my God. Hey. Some people are so funny. If that's what passes for levitating these days, that's, uh, uh, you know. I didn't even see the light shine through. Well, you're focused on lawyering. <laughs> I'm you know? lawyering up there. Like, it's not your job to watch the light, you know. I've had really uh, you, odd. I also had a client who wanted to bring in this like metal triangle to court because she was convinced that if she would like ring it before the court proceedings were starting, that no one could lie during the court proceedings. <laughs> kind of purifying the uh, the air yeah. or whatever. It's like whatever it takes. Hey, there's a, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. Um, so anyway, am I right? So another little part of our story, uh, you're, you're in my story, me and Edie 
is uh, we had we ran a business together. Uh, we've actually we after college we lived together once, and then when we were doing this business, we lived together. Uh, so we have like had a lot of different interactions together, and I was wondering, uh, I, I this one I think I can take pretty good responsibility with for. I kind of dragged Edie uh, across the country oh, to definitely. help to help work on that business that we had both started. And uh, dragged her out of law school. I mean, not physically, but uh, you know, persuasively, uh, conned her into leaving out everything she knew behind in New York, and came out to uh, to California to work on that business. Um, Although and, I don't and, know if you should take the entire credit because I think that Utah Phillips and Ani DeFranco deserve maybe as much credit as you. Uh, okay. I'm going to have to get credit for something before this thing is over. I'm not I, saying you don't get credit. I'm just saying, you know, share, shared, shared credit. credit. I can share, I could probably live with sharing credit with those two. Um, that, by the way, everybody, you look up a song called Nevada city, California. If you want to know what Edie's babbling about with that stuff. Um, it's so that song, is it that song only? I think it's the whole, the album, the past go good. anywhere is a great album. Yeah. I don't know. If that's the one. I think it's the one before that. That's, anyway. That is the one. Okay. Um, and an a, a influence on me as well. And Utah Phillips, actually, an influence on me as an activist. So that's probably for a, another time. Um, but am I right in thinking that sort of at, you said your eyes had gotten opened uh, in college. Is it accurate that you didn't really do activism until you came out to California? For cannabis? For, yeah, for absolutely. Yes. For legalization, because we, we, when you came out here, yeah. we relocated to basically the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, this hippie community, Nevada City, Nevada County area is all hippies around there, pretty much. Well, it's not all hippies, but the whole area is a. It's not just Nevada City, um, but uh, and and a very at the time, medical marijuana in California was still relatively new. And, uh, and pretty contentious in terms of its implementation. It, uh, it was left open to the various counties on how to implement it. And so there was a lot of differences in how things were going in various counties. Some counties were really harsh and others were cooler and so on. And uh, you pretty quickly got uh, enmeshed with the community of folks who were working on that stuff. Do you remember even um, how that happened? Um Specifically? I became basically a medical marijuana cannabis courtroom junkie. And I started going to Steve Cubby's courtroom proceedings because um, they were going after him and uh, started attending another couple people's courtroom proceedings. And then I started working with Tony Sarah and David Nick Um on cases like doing little legal research projects for them and that kind of stuff. Right. So I remember the first thing kind of being um, Steve Cubby's, Steve Cubby's case. case and another couple of people who aren't quite as um, public and uh, and hanging out at the libertarian um, ad advocates or activists, so to speak, um, who had now kind of come back to stand up for Steve and, and what he had been going through. And I, right. I definitely think like meeting Steve and Michelle and starting to go to those court appearances and getting to know Tony and David and helping out with cases when I could um, was was how that sort of started. 
That's where that all built up. And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, and I still, yeah. I mean, I still work with those attorneys to this day. So, um, it's still right. And even, uh, well, I don't know where, uh, Steve is, he's got a lot going on, but, um, yeah, you're still basically, um, circulating in those same circles. And that's, I mean, you probably couldn't have had a better entry point into the California legalization movement than uh than Steve Covey's trial at that particular time. Uh listeners don't know, but Steve Covey, he's um he's a libertarian. He was a libertarian candidate for governor. He was kind of a high profile um legal he was a supporter of Prop two fifteen, which became the California medical marijuana law. He kind of got a high profile from doing those things and then had a very high profile bust where he uh a raid a really dramatic raid on his house i can still remember the email from his son the night of that raid it was a big it was like my dad's getting raided right now and it was like such a uh eye opener and uh and then he had this huge public and he fought so, so hard like he's the opposite of the whole take the plea bargain like he couldn't be more the opposite of that but he um, i mean he has Steve. cancer and doesn't really he almost doesn't have a, he didn't have a choice in a lot of ways like he in a lot of i mean in a lot of ways yeah. although peter mcwilliams hey everyone lance here uh, lance brown by the way i forgot to mention that at the beginning of the episode uh in the interview that i just interrupted i'm about to say some i'm about to babble unproductively uh about steve cubby and peter mcwilliams for a minute and i probably would have let that pass without interrupting but I left out an important detail about Peter McWilliams' um, case, which I'm about to talk about. And at the time, I think it was itching in the back of my head that there was a detail that I was leaving out. And, uh, and then I, you know, checked into it afterwards. And so I talk about how he uh, stopped using marijuana in his, during his trial, and, which ultimately led to his death. What I left out is the fact that uh, he, his family had put their house, I believe it is, up for his bail. So they had put their house at risk uh, for his bail. And so it was a condition of his bail that he not smoke marijuana. And um, because his family, you know, their stuff was at risk, he didn't feel comfortable putting, you know, going against that order. So that uh, sheds a light on the story that didn't fit in in my brain in the moment of the interview. And also, listening back to it, I got a little worried that it sounded like I was finding fault with either Steve or Peter's um, you know, legal defense or their approach or any of the choices they made during their trials and their persecutions. And uh, I just wanted to make clear that that's not the case at all. And I have great admiration for both Peter McWilliams and Steve Cubby. I also want to take this moment to uh, do what I should do at the beginning and the end of the episodes, which is to mention that there's a show notes page for each of these interview episodes, and you can find the show notes page for this episode at activiststories.com slash two. It's always going to be activiststories.com slash the number of the episode, and this is episode two. Uh, I bring that up because in those show notes... 
There are links to more about Peter McWilliams and his whole trial, some, that whole story, um, Steve Cubby and his trial, and everything else significant that's mentioned in this episode and in any episode will be linked to on their episode page. So if you want to read along or check out the resources that are mentioned or any of the people that are mentioned during this episode, you can go to activiststories.com slash two, the number two. Um, and I'll take a moment to just say if you could check us out on iTunes, if you're not there already, any attention that we get at iTunes helps us get early exposure in iTunes. So even if you don't use it, if you really like what we're doing here and you want to do a little support, go uh, play the episodes over there or subscribe, rate and review the show, uh, send your friends there, that sort of thing. It's early days, so any help we can get is very much appreciated. Later, when we're huge, all the help that we can get, we'll, I'll just brush it off and be unappreciated. But now, very appreciated. So get it, you know, get it while you can. Okay, now back to the interview where I'm about to try and make a pointless comparison between Steve Cubby and Peter McWilliams' trials, and then fail, and then hopefully Edie is going to say intelligent things and rescue the interview. Thanks for listening. He didn't have a choice in a lot of ways. Like he... In a lot of, I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. although Peter McWilliams, um, you know, uh, kind of a semi-famous guy before Steve who got put in that same position, he was ordered to not smoke pot. And Peter McWilliams, because uh, he would go to jail if he did and wouldn't be able to smoke pot anyway. And he stopped and, and died right. from, you know, from illness uh, related stuff. Um, so, I mean, that that's a different road to go down. But I suppose, you know, Steve probably looked at that and was like, well, I don't think that's a great road to go down. Um, and And had to fight at every step of the way because they fought too. the other side you know, dug in with every step that Steve would take to fight it. They would take, you know, a step to fight it. And uh, it turned out, right, to be basically like a, a trumped up thing. They uh, targeted political targeting of him. Um, and uh, and for the most part, he ended up kind of beating it at great cost over several years and so on. Um, so anyway, that's the context. And you kind of showed up in the midst of that. And, and started helping out and started working with those people. So it's definitely a crash course in like the heavy duty fight in terms of that stuff. So let me just ask you for a second about, so, so you're basically, you're kind of an archetype that has existed through history, which is the activist lawyer. The person who, you know, is a, there's, I mean, there's millions of lawyers. I don't know about millions. Yeah, globally at least. Uh, there's millions of lawyers. And uh, I don't know about most of them, but, you know, for a lot of them, it's kind of just a job. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure they're passionate about it and so on, but they basically, they have their cases. They take whatever cases come in. They pick a niche. And, uh, and then, you know, they try and do the best for those cases. They're not necessarily looking to change the world. They're not necessarily looking to change the law. Uh, they're not necessarily looking to make waves or challenge things per se. Um, and then there's lawyers like, you know, like Gandhi, who's a lawyer. Or, you know, like the lawyers who fought against slavery and the lawyers who fought against prohibition and the, uh, many famous lawyers who've taken on cases for the very point of making change, you know, and, and often against their own interests because they, you know, they, 
they end up losing money on the case or they lose credibility on the case or they get challenged by their peers or they get excluded by their peers and so on. Um, and so, and you've chosen to be that, that person, the, the lawyer who, uh, I mean, I, I know, I suppose you take some cases that are not, you know, um, activists per se or not even necessarily cannabis issue related, but definitely the mainstream of your action and the mainstream of your career is about, um, you know, fighting for change, both uh, on an individual basis, fighting for def particular defendants, but like you said, fighting for a bigger change, fighting to make precedent that's going to affect other people that aren't your, um, you know, aren't your clients. <sighs> And I, I don't really have a, I don't know if I have a question about that, except that like, what do I mean, what are your thoughts on that part of your identity, that part of your purpose? Like, um, well, I guess why? I mean, you were set, we, we should say like, uh, another thing I'm going to take a hundred percent credit for, uh, you were on a path originally to become a trial lawyer, basically. Right. I mean, kind of a, a corporate a class, lawyer, like in New York, classic, I was studying corporations. New York Jewish lawyer, like, and that, that's not even racist, but like in the tradition, you were going to supposed to follow the, the path that was ordained by your family and so on. And, uh, and you were on that route. So you were going to be making, you know, mega bucks. Actually, it's pretty funny when I, even after going back to law school in California and graduating and kind of knowing a little bit about what I wanted to practice in, I remember when I got my bar results, my mom was so excited because now I could finally go out and get a job with a big firm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny because I was like, yeah, no, I don't think you get it. But yeah, back in those <laughs> days, they, they've, they've gotten a little more clued. I was actually, that's something I want to talk to you about, but they've kind of caught up a little bit more to re well, your reality. I think, I think they also, like, I've had numerous, probably like all of my friends that I went to law school with that – um, have maybe not all, but a majority of my friends that I went to law school with that graduated, that started working at big firms, either the firm shuts down or they start like getting into trouble and having to get a new job. And so there's really not as much. And I think that this is true overall with corporations, but I think there's really not as much stability as some people seem to think that there is. So I think my mom has a little bit shifted her um, her understanding with like why I would make the choices that I make. Um, right. well, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a little more dog eat dog in that realm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and much more competitive and, and, um, combative between firms and, and there's just, um, and even between I mean, lawyers inside firms for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah big time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I watch, I watch that show suits. So I, I, I know think I got, um, lucky in a lot of ways with getting kind of, I think that opportunity a lot of times is both intelligence and timing. And I was lucky to make the connections that I made with Pier 5 and Tony Sarah's office. And, um, and so it was a combination of that luck and the passion that I had for, for this issue. I've never, I've tried many medical marijuana cases and I've um, I've never lost one that I've taken to trial. Um, so I have a great reputation in the field 
And yeah. so I usually don't wind up taking cases that I don't believe in um, or feel like I can win. And I think that a lot of times cases are a lot more winnable than people think, um, especially with this issue, because it is such a gray area of the law. Right. So um, I don't know if it's that all of the cases that I take on are surrounding this issue or because kind of my reputation has lended those kind of cases to come to me that I wind up working with those cases. Um, but I, I really like what I do and I wouldn't trade it for, for a big time like law firm job at a big financial, you know, institution or whatever. Uh, under no circumstances. Yeah. So there's, there's no offer. No, someone says, uh, you know, uh, whatever. $10 million a year to go try corp, you know, corporate cases. You don't get to do any pot cases. It's going to be full time and whatever. Uh, wouldn't do it. Maybe for a year. I don't know. I mean, I guess then <laughs> I you can take the $10 million. I think that it's hard to answer those kind of questions, but the industry is changing quite a bit. Like I work right now out of a pretty um, big building in, in Santa Rosa and there's lots of lawyers in this building. In fact, when I first started practicing, I was representing a kid who was falsely imprisoned for a couple years. And the lawyers that represented the city um, in fighting that case work in the same building that my office is now. And so it's just been predominantly kind of a conservative space for lack of a better right. term. But when I talk to the lawyers here about what I do, like I talk to some lawyers nearby that um, that have a whole bunch of lawyers in their firm. And when I talk to them about what I do, they're like interested in getting someone on board in their firm that does that kind of stuff, or at least creating some kind of a symbiotic relationship with our office um, for like referrals or that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot of movement. Um, and I've definitely been approached by larger law firms who want me to work for them, but I've never been approached where they don't want me to deal with cannabis. It's always like, oh my God, we see that you're specializing in cannabis or you, right. you know, utilizing your knowledge in cannabis quite a bit. Um, the Bar Association, the National Bar Association had a conference last year, their annual conference. And for the first time, they invited a panel to talk about medical cannabis, which is pretty historic because the Bar Association ho has always been like you shouldn't advise people about cannabis because it's illegal. So right. now taking a position where we're actually going to at our national conference, we're going to have a panel where we're going to let lawyers sit up there and talk about advising clients on medical cannabis issues is like right. huge. And even though even though it still is based, you know, legal, yeah. legal, illegal on a national level. Yeah, And so they invited six people to speak on that panel and five of them were lawyers and they called it. Um, lawyers who specialize or are experts in the field of medical cannabis or something along those lines. And um, I was one of the five lawyers that was on the panel, and only two of the lawyers on the whole panel were from California. So as far as like specializing in cannabis, the law doesn't have like you can develop a specialty in criminal defense or corporations or that kind of stuff. They don't have a medical cannabis specialization. But right. like as far as I know, there's only five people in the whole country who the Bar Association has referred to as experts as lawyers in this field. Right. You know? 
So yeah, I think yeah. that there is more of a movement that I see of bigger firms being like, oh, well, we'd like you to work with our firm, um, but we still want you to do pot. We just, <laughs> we just kind of want to start a pot version right. of our firm. Um, right, right. And I've definitely had some approaches like that. And uh, I, I like to stand, like I like to baby my cases maybe a bit much for a big firm. Right. Um, and I'm really personal. Like I want people to reach me. And in fact, my staff is almost like, you need to like not be so available on your phone and call. Like people have this expectation of that then when they can call you at all hours. And right. so, um, it's tough. It's tough to create a balance. And I think it would be even tougher with a big firm, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you brought up something, and I, we probably are going to have to wrap this up. I've got a bunch of uh, dogs that are panting crazy, like wanting to go. So, Great, i got to um, get pretty soon, too. Yeah, so, we'll, you know, we'll, there's a lot more to catch catch up on, and, and we're going to definitely do another one of these yeah, sometime soon. Yeah, you did about my three heartbreaks, which I wrote out wrote down. I know. I warned Edie. <laughs> I was going to ask her about her three most heartbreaking cases, uh, just so she would be able to, you know, she wouldn't have to think of them on the spot. And uh, I don't think we have time to give those the attention they deserve. But I, I want to ask you about one thing, which I think it, it gets into kind of what you're saying. Uh, and I think it's hard, like if anyone's listening to this and they're younger and they've grown up kind of in this atmosphere, especially if they're in California and they've grown up in this atmosphere of the past, like, say, 10 years or so of really growing acceptance and growing normalization of, of medical marijuana use and even recreational marijuana use and just a, just a general um, loosening of the of the, you know, tight butt of America in terms of uh, how they see pot and people who use pot and uh, and all that stuff in the pot laws. It's just been a gigantic turnaround. I, honestly, one that like when I was an activist in the early 90s at UMass, it, it's it's hard to really convey the difference to someone who who wasn't there kind of. I mean, obviously anyone who's our age or older, they, they know like the just, so, just say no days and but I mean, back then, if you were a PA activist, you were kind of a joke, you know, and you were like ridiculed and you were looked down upon and you were definitely looked at like, like, what are you guys doing? You know, like people thought basically you're wasting your time. You're fighting for a stupid, silly issue. Uh, the idea of medical marijuana was like laughed at and just laughed off as a thing. Like it just wasn't even considered a thing by people. You know, again, this is over 20, 25 years ago. And um, and partly because of the, I would say because of the pot law in California, that was one of the um, watershed uh, changes in the country that started that shift. And even that took a long, long time. I mean, that's almost 20 years ago now as well that Prop 215 got passed. And so, so as a lawyer, you know, dealing with this, and this is now um, you're almost 10 years into uh, you know real serious lawyering on this front. And lawyering, that's the proper verb, right? Uh, I think so. Um, you've dealt with, I assume, uh, quite a bit of people looking down on you, like DAs looking down on you, judges looking down on you, police looking down on you, um, dismissing you, laughing at you. 
like even maybe even literally, right? Like laughing in your face sometimes, kind of, or or at least close to that sort of gesture. Um, in oh my god, your... I had the most embarrassing. I I could have died. I wanted to crawl into like a little. I guess it wasn't as big of a deal as in my head it was. But recently, I had this DA. Um, and we were, so a preliminary examination kind of usually takes a few hours, maybe a day. And there were two that were set to start and I was one of them and another lawyer was the other one. And the judge, who was a woman, asked the DA, who's a man, um, which one could get started. And I don't know why he said this, but the DA says, Miss Lerman gets me started all the time. (laughs) So inappropriate. Like, I was so embarrassed, and I was just like, did he just say that? And everyone in the courtroom busts out laughing hysterically, and I'm just standing there like, oh, my God. I wish I had the wit. Like, now, when I think about it, I should have said something like, I'll finish with you pretty quickly. Or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, this isn't going to take all that long. Yeah, you should have said, and it's it's always over really quickly or something like that. Yeah, but I think that there's a lot of joking around like that that happens even to my face. Um, I I think I try to take what I call a scorched earth effect to lawyering, which is very different from most lawyers. Like most lawyers will work in a county and try and buddy up with the district. Not that I have a problem with being friends with district attorneys because I'm friends with plenty of lawyers and district attorneys, but their main thing is that connection and being able to work and network and get like good deals for their clients. Yeah, developing developing yeah. relationships and, and stuff. My thing is more like I want to come to your county and never been in your county before and set off a bomb, a litigation bomb, not a real bomb, but a litigation bomb that is going to explode in justice for cannabis in your entire community. You know, and those are the cases that excite me are cases like I don't care what that DA is going home and telling his wife. Like I want to be the person who comes in and just just clears that courtroom and makes things totally different. And I want to go in and fight for my client and my client's rights. And this is about them and their fight and not about the system. And um, and sometimes that winds up, you know, getting my client in trouble or getting my client almost um, not in trouble, but looked at a little bit differently because they're not just taking the easy deal. They are right. going the harder path. Um, right. So I think that there is definitely the folks out there that choose not to litigate that way. But I also am very open with my clients about my style. And that's what they're hiring, like, because that's what they want. So... I don't know if that answers your question entirely. Uh, well, but, is it, I mean, would you say to some extent that you're, um, I mean, is that kind of how you deal with the, the being looked at? I'm trying to think of another word for being looked down upon, but like basically not being taken seriously. Like there are people in your field, your opposition for the most part, who, um, you know, consider what you're doing either like a joke or like wrong, like that you're, you know, what you're doing is advocating for something that is, uh, you know, the, the wrong idea and the wrong way to go. And, and to some true, you know, like a joke, like a lot of cops to look at, especially medical marijuana. There was a, you know, yeah. pretty big period of time 
where uh, most medical marijuana users are considered to be abusing the system kind of and, and just not, not real medical use and so on. There's a whole thing about that. And so, I, I mean, I think there's a fine line to when it happens and where it happens. And I'm very cognizant of that. Like if the DA says something to me personally, um, privately, it's different from how I will react if, let's say, they say something publicly or they say something derogatory about my client. Like I've had um, this and so many DAs have actually like they don't even want to work against me anymore because not because of my personality, but I am very litigious and I like to litigate. And right. um, and so they just don't like they'll just want to settle cases because they just don't want to deal with me anymore. Um but I think that I tend to react um, the most when there are facial attacks made against my client that aren't legitimized in front of the judge. And I've on numerous occasions, like the one that I'm thinking of offhand, um, the district attorney said something about my client illegally selling marijuana. And they had no evidence of my client illegally selling marijuana. And the the allegation like would either get proved up in court or not. So there was no reason like prior during the pre-litigation stuff to be accusing him in front of the judge as having done this. And I kind of snapped and I said something along the lines of like rumor having it that I saw the district attorney, the district attorney outside in the parking lot snorting co cocaine off of a prostitute's breast. <laughs> And the judge looked at me and I was like, well, if we're going to make allegations that have like no reality to do them at all and we can just say whatever we want, then I say we go with that one. <laughs> this is in court? Oh, yeah. Or... Yeah. Nice. And, <laughs> and the um, DA got beat red and he spent 10 minutes explaining to the judge how he was not in the parking lot snorting cocaine off of anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just thought was so great because like, okay, if they want to start making allegations that are baseless and like we're going to talk about stuff, then like let's, you know, start making shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I think that they tend to act like they change their tune quite a bit when they realize that you're willing to go that far. You know, like that guy didn't want to argue with me anymore. <laughs> Right. That's a, that's why I think um, that's my that's how I see it kind of is that you you basically shut them up by outperforming them for the most part. And so, you know, anyone who laughs you off is going to kind of uh, is going to look back on that and be like, oh, man, I was an idiot to not take her seriously. And now I'm feeling the pain from having, you know, done so, having kind of brushed you off or dismissed you. I don't get. I think that I got a lot more of that earlier on. I think now what I get mostly, um, especially in counties that I've worked out in the past, is like, okay, what do you want? Well, yeah, because now you've you established know. a reputation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, now they know what they're getting into. Yeah, there's no no one. I don't think there's people who don't take you seriously. I mean, does it come up anymore where someone's like hasn't heard of you? Uh, doesn't know the deal uh, and is like, oh, yeah, da, 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 da. And you're just like, okay, well, buddy, what happens, hang on a minute. Uh, what happens a lot, like in counties that I don't work with in a on a regular basis, 
is the district attorney's not familiar with me and doesn't know who I am and then soon learns it, like after the third brief that they need to actually respond to in writing because right. they just don't like to litigate a whole bunch. But sometimes it's more like, it, this sounds kind of weird, but because I'm coming from Mendocino County or Sonoma County and I'll go to these remote counties, the judge will be more like, well, stuff doesn't happen here in Bodunk, California, the way that it happens in Mendocino County. You know, and then I'll get right. the like stern lecture about how I'm coming from Mendocino County and how every, everyone gets away with everything in Mendocino County. So I need to be respectful of like their proceedings. And then, right. Because Mendocino is this legendarily sort of pot friendly county. Is that, yeah, I mean, yeah, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. That, that's the attitude that I get. And I just got that right. um, recently in another case where I was in an out, out of county area. Um, but those are my favorite. Uh, those are my favorite cases in a lot of ways, because then that means, okay, you guys don't do things this way. And when I leave, I want you to <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> give them the old Mendocino. I need to bring them some Mendocino because they're not getting it. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And it's, it's actually funny because the district attorney and, and the sheriff in Mendo are, I'm kind of friendly with both of them and we'll talk about it. And I said something, um, there was some like, district attorneys meeting of all the district attorneys or something along those lines. And I was, uh, they were looking for someone to come talk about cannabis issues. So they had called me and I was recommending the DA in Mendocino County. And they were like, oh, no one's going to even listen to what he has to say because he's so progressive. And I'm thinking he's not that progressive. Like he and I argue a lot about stuff. Um, but well, yeah, he's you know, still a law enforcement people, person, people you know, just in some of those conservative counties, they discount what people have to say just because they're from Mendocino. Like they, they operate differently there. Well, yeah, just like a lot of people discount kind of uh, Cal people from California. You know, like California itself has that gets looked down upon from more conservative or more, um, you know, rural, uh, middle of the country type of places or whatever for being uh, having the wacky ideas just like San Francisco does for over you know in california overall like san francisco the leading edge kind of place in that you know in that sense oh, when I was uh, in law school in new york every time the teacher wanted to show us how how stuff worked differently somewhere else and the crazy stuff that was going on somewhere else nine time 99 percent of the time it was a california case that they sure. were showing us and it's just stuff is different here well, and usually leading the way. It's usually different here and then, uh, you know, spreads around, uh, which is obviously the case now. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to have to kind of, this is going to have to have a part two. Okay. And But norm, normally at the end of this, uh, my last thing is to let the guest kind of uh, make the case for their cause. Uh, but we're, we're going to skip that for now. I, for one thing, I think the case is being made just it's just happening so we don't need to be persuading people about legalization at least not this time but what i would like you to do is i want you to speak to the person who's about to become a lawyer and who you know is they're around 20 they're in the mid 20s probably or whatever maybe even later it doesn't matter but they're about to break into law law and they're about to uh you know put out their shingle or pick a path a career uh pick a way to go and uh, assuming that you were, well, you know, I'm assuming that you would try and convince them to do something more like what you've done, 
rather than something less, uh, you know, more uh, obvious and easy or, you know, the other path, the sort of default paths of lawyers. Um, can you? Yeah, sure. Um, let, let's convince that person to throw away that lucrative career in corporate law or trial being, being a trial lawyer and, uh, and convince them to instead be a lawyer for change, who's going to take chances and buck the system and represent the underdog who, who needs it, but doesn't have the money to support it and all that stuff. Who tell, let's get someone to throw away their future. So yesterday, a good friend of mine had her daughter's bat mitzvah and she just turned 12 and there was over 200 people at this bat mitzvah. Um, but on like candle number five, I don't know if you know much about bat mitzvah, but they basically have people come up and give blessings to the person. Um, so candle number five, they call me and I had no idea that they were going to call me to get up there. And what she said, the, the girl was that I was an inspiration to her. And I know from talking to her that she wants to be a lawyer. She's 12, not, not 20, but she's right. very smart. And I think that my fear and hesitation when I hear people say they want to be a lawyer is that I think that being a lawyer is not meaningful any more than the degree or the piece of paper that you have unless you have a passion or a desire or a goal to accomplish with it. And whatever your passion in life is, I think you can use that passion as a lawyer and do good for that passion. But um, it concerns me when I hear people wanting to become a lawyer, let's say to get rich or make a lot of money. I think that it's un number one, it's unrealistic. Like the amount of debt, I'm still paying off my student loans that you right. acquire becoming a professional is tremendous. And it also makes it when you have to pay off those student loans that you get into this vicious cycle where you're doing things that you don't necessarily believe in or support because you have to make money and right. you have to make enough money to cover that overhead, you know, and then there's the whole issue of like passing the bar exam and actually getting to practice. And so if it's not something that you're passionate about or there's not something out there that you feel really strongly about and you become a lawyer you're kind of this passionless soul that's going to be able to just accomplish whatever someone else's goals are for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, potentially right. um, over time. And to me, that just doesn't seem very exciting. Whereas like I stay at my office late at night and, and try to work as hard as I can because I'm actually accomplishing goals for people that I care about. And I don't care if it's like you care about horses or you care about dogs or you care about kittens, like whatever that is, you can turn that passion into a practice that works and makes money. But um, I, I think that a lot of times people think that they have to kind of give up their um, ideals in order to become a lawyer. And law school kind of tries to do that to you. Um, so I would say don't let it, you know, and don't let it take away your creativity. Don't let it take away your passion, your individuality, the things that you care about and set you aside from everyone else. And that the money will come once you get good enough and you're doing what you've specialized at. 
and what your, you know, the niche that you've spent time actually working at. So some lawyers try to learn lots of different things in lots of different ways, and they never become kind of a master of a small niche area that, that they're good at. And I think the best way for coming, for becoming successful as a lawyer is to really create a niche that is unique in some ways and also is, and it doesn't have to be so unique that you're the only one doing it, but unique enough where there's a demand for that work and then the work will come to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. And I think that's a really, you know, you make a really good point that it's like, you can definitely just kind of go down the path and be a cog or whatever, but that's not going to be fulfilling basically. And, um, and they can cut you off at any time. I know numerous people who had, you know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollar jobs out of law school or a hundred that eventually got up to 200 and now have no job. And so there's no stability in that. Whereas if you've created your own infrastructure and your own backing, you're not going to be as concerned about that. Well, and also, you know, if you, even if you do economically struggle, if you're doing it for something that you're passionate about and you're working for people that you re genuinely want to help and you're, uh, you're learning things and you're plunging into new and challenging areas to pursue your passion and stuff, then, you know, it's probably a lot less pain painful to, um, you know, have struggled to pay the bills when that's going on rather than like what you're doing is soulless and you have no real interest in it and, and you're struggling to pay the bills. And you're not going to be good at it, you know. Well, right. It's hard to be good at something that you're passionate at. Or not passionate, you're not passionate about. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. But I don't know. I think that uh, it's really hard to get into people's brains and figure out, number one, what they're going to be passionate about, like what they're eventually going to like doing or what they, you know, some, some people just don't have a passion in stuff for stuff. So um, I think that, at that point, you need to start exploring stuff that's not law school, like a passion, you know, go out and do stuff and find out what it is you're interested in that's not necessarily law school. I kind of feel like I did that with the marijuana thing even be way before I was a lawyer. Right. You know. Right. So. Right on. Okay. Let's put um, Yeah, I think let's wrap that up for now. And uh, we're, there's definitely going to be an Edie Lerman part two interview <laughs> sometime in the future. Probably a part three. I think we got a lot to talk about. Well, great, Edie. I really appreciate your time. And thanks for being a guest on Activist Stories. You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.